Well, good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's. My name is Tyler. If we haven't already met, delighted that you are here. As I begin, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, fill this place with your spirit, we pray, so that by your spirit and through your word, we might see the face of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this in all things. Amen. So here's a paraphrase of how our Ecclesiastes reading this morning starts. It's King Solomon writing, and he says, I was awesome, and I liked being awesome. I did great things. I made great works. Money, land, real estate, people, power, pleasures of all sort, whatever I dreamt of, it was mine. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, I got it. It was the best. I was the best at all of it, and I enjoyed the work itself. The long hours at the office, they were nothing to me because I was having fun. That saying, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life, that could have been written about me, King Solomon. And then one day Solomon says, I looked at everything I'd done and realized it was all for nothing. It was all vanity, done in vain, unfruitful. It was all striving after wind, chasing a thing that can never be caught. All my work was pointless, the king says, because in the end it amounted to nothing. For our family, Labor Day is really the start of the year, no disrespect to January 1st. My entire life has been spent in or around education, so our year runs September to August. And I'm sure some of you feel the same way because wherever you are, workplaces ramp back up in the summer, the city emerges from the summer holidays, the urgency and busyness of autumn creeps into the air and pumpkin spices everywhere. And in some, that means you know it's back to work time. And so this is a fitting weekend in between our Ten Commandments series and our upcoming Mission of Jesus series to think about the meaning of our work, whatever that may be. Because we all do stuff, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether you're an employee, a student, whether you're a retiree, you're working at home, if you're unemployed, you know that looking for a job is a job. We all do stuff. How does our work relate to our calling to follow Jesus? This morning's reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, a work of philosophy and theology written by King David's son, King Solomon, who was king over Israel about a thousand years before Jesus lived. And when God offered Solomon a wish, he famously chose wisdom. Despite his wisdom, he messed up in some catastrophic ways with ongoing effects, but that's a story for another day. For today, we're looking at what Solomon, in his wisdom, has to say about work and its pointlessness. Most of us can't identify with the heights of success that Solomon describes. For most of us, achievement and wealth don't come so easily. Most of us aren't born to be kings. And when they do come, our achievements are more modest. Getting that job or that promotion, making the team, or getting into the university that you want. But it's precisely the crazy levels of Solomon's successes that make this a teaching text for us, because the impulses he describes aren't foreign to any of us. He did work, he built a home, he built his financial resources, just like you and I do. He had singers and many concubines. We have Spotify and Tinder, everybody likes their entertainment. He ranked himself against his peers and his predecessors, lots of us do that too. So Solomon, despite being nothing like us, is actually a lot like us. And that's important because so often we imagine that if we were just a little bit more successful in some aspect of our work, then we'd be satisfied. Anybody here ever had that thought? Get that title. Get those marks on your test. 
Well, imagine if you achieved every goal you could possibly have in life, the most, the biggest, the best. Solomon was that, but times 100. He's us with a rabbit's foot and a silver spoon, high-octane gas and no brakes. He's successful all the ways we would want to be and a bunch of ways we could never even think of. And when he gets to the top of his mountain, which is so much higher than any of our mountains, he looks around and says, this is all pointless. Sometimes we think our problems come from a lack of achievement. If only this, if only that. But Solomon achieves everything, and his problem remains. So he's a warning to us that success, I did great works, just might not make us as happy as we think it would. So what's Solomon's problem? What makes him think that all his amazing work, his vanity, is pointless? Well, take a look at, uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can take a look at Ecclesiastes 2.18 and following. I hated all my toil, seeing that I must leave it to the one who will come after me, and who knows whether they will be wise or a fool, yet they will be master of all for which I have toiled. Solomon's problem is death. Death is what makes him say that all his accomplishments are in vain because death's going to take it all away from him in the end, he says, and somebody else is going to get it. So what does someone have from all their toil in the end and their striving of heart? This is what obsesses Solomon. What does our work get us in the end? Because most of us are going to spend a significant portion of our lives working in one way or another. Maybe it pays the bills. You might like it. But what lasting benefit do you receive from it? Does it have any eternal significance? How can our work really matter, given that we're going to die and everything we've ever accomplished is going to be taken away from us? When everything comes to an end, what's the point of doing anything at all? This is the essential problem that plagues Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes, and he circles around and around. What's the meaning of living a life that ends? In the middle of his wrestling with the problem, he arrives at a refrain in 2 verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. And he's going to repeat variations of this throughout the book. And the meaning is clear. Life is fleeting, and a lot of it is work, so enjoy the ride as long as you can. But this strategy, enjoy the, what you've got while you've got it, doesn't actually answer the question of work's pointlessness. It doesn't answer the question, it avoids it. Instead of confronting the inevitability of death and what it means for our life, Solomon's advice here says, in a way that feels pretty contemporary, honestly, live in the moment, be happy with what you've got, and enjoy each day for its own sake. Don't we all do this sometimes? I don't know about you, but I don't show up to work every day thinking about what it all means in the grand scheme of things. Often as not, I'm checking my phone, I'm figuring out what emails I have to reply to, what meetings I've got that day, what is on my to-do list, and if I come to the end of the day having enjoyed it, that's a pretty good day. There's nothing better than that, Solomon says. The problem is that they're not all good days. And good days come to an end. And for some people, good days are exceedingly rare. We can use our work sometimes to distract ourselves from the problem of its ultimate pointlessness, but that doesn't resolve the tension that Solomon's dealing with. And that's why, despite his own advice to enjoy the ride, he's right back in his spiral. In 3 verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Sure, fine, enjoy your work. That's the best thing. But what does it get you? What's the point? In this section of chapter 3, Solomon is getting at the heart of our problem. 
I've seen the business that God has given to mortals to be busy with, he writes in verse 10. This is an allusion to a line at the beginning of the book where he describes our business, our work, as a terrible preoccupation and unhappy. And that's because we don't know what our lives will look like or our loved ones or the world. We just know that there's a day that's going to come when there's no more future ahead of us and we're going to die. And by this point in Ecclesiastes, we can see Solomon's core tension. On the one hand, he sees that death makes all of our achievements meaningless in the end because no matter how high we rise, we all wind up six feet under. So the best we can hope for is that as we toil to put food on the table, we take pleasure in the work as well and forget about death for the time being. And we can be pretty good at this, the urgent driving out the important, as it were. We might do a great job of living as if we're never going to die, but eventually and repeatedly, death will push and shove and get up in our faces whether that's by our habits of mind or our life circumstances. And we hate it. We hate thinking about death. The English romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley might might as well have been paraphrasing Ecclesiastes when he wrote, man is incapable of imagining to himself annihilation. Whatever may be his true and final destination, there is a spirit within him at enmity with nothingness and dissolution. We don't know what to do with the fact that someday we won't exist anymore. Now, we've seen that we use our work to distract ourselves from that terrifying fact, but there's another way we use our work to confront our fear of death as well. And that strategy is that we can use our work to build monuments to ourselves that will outlast our own lives. By working, we can try and make our mark on the world, whether big or small, and it somehow gives us comfort that something we did, a sign of our willpower, of our effort, of our existence, will outlast us. An illustration of this is the poet Shelley's classic sonnet, Ozymandias. The poem tells the story of a traveler returning from Egypt who sees a ruined statue of a king in the desert there, just two legs, the head lying half buried in the sand, and the inscription of the broken statue's base reads, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. In this poem, one of the great classics of English verse, we see an extraordinary picture of the pointlessness of building monuments to ourselves. Ozymandias, who may have been the pharaoh in the biblical book of Egypt, erected a larger-than-life statue as a testament to the greatness of his works. But now he's long, long dead. He would give anything to be standing where the traveler stands. And the statue that's supposed to proclaim his own immortality is actually an ironic monument to the precise opposite that Ozymandias and all his work is gone. Most of us aren't in a position to commission statues of ourselves, but it doesn't stop us, usually subconsciously or unconsciously, from trying to cheat death with the enduring impact of a legacy, a successful career, children, setting the school record, whatever. I certainly know this temptation. Some of you will know that my career prior to pastoral ministry was as a faith-based advocate for the abolition of nuclear weapons. It's a cause I believe in, no doubts as to its worth, but there were moments in my long hours of writing and lobbying and traveling, moments of doing the work, where I wondered, am I fighting this fight because it's actually good for other people, or am I doing what I'm doing because I want the world to look the way I want it to look? Am I doing this to make my mark, to prove that I was here, that I matter because I want to be part of something that will outlast me. That's monument making too. Not as literal as Ozymandias's, but not really different. And it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. Because there is nothing that we do 
that time will not erase. Well, that's the cheerful Labor Day sermon you all came out to hear, isn't it? Off to the barbecue. Here's the thing. This is our situation. This is it. And I say this to you and to myself because if we don't understand the truth that our work will never amount to anything of itself, we will never appreciate what it means to live in God's story, to live in God's will. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, we see this remarkable statement. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into human minds, yet so they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity into human minds. We know that we're part of a much greater timeline than the little window we get to see. But we never get the God's eye view of the story. We never get to step outside and see what part we play in it. We never get to know what our labors were for. Just as we never get to know how the lives and work of people long dead whose names we'll never know made our lives and work possible, we never get to know the future that is created by what we do. So what you do every day, your work, whatever it is, it matters. But in the scheme of things, you never get to know how or why. In God's plan, you might plant an entire orchard so that a bird could rest on a single branch a century from now. You just don't know. And there's a terrific freedom to this, if you can accept it. There's a terrific freedom in not being the author of the story and not being the director of the film. Because we know the basic arc of the plot. In Jesus, God is making all things new. But we're not in charge of the details. Our, role, our job is simply to play the role we've been given. And that role we've been given is look like Jesus. Wherever you are, wherever you work, look like Jesus while you're doing it. Because God doesn't need our successes to build his kingdom. I mean, he'll use them, sure, but not in a way that gives us any credit. God is not wowed by our LinkedIn profiles. The only useful contribution we can make to God's work is through our love and humility, whatever and wherever our work is. So unless your job violates your conscience, it honestly doesn't really matter what you do. What matters eternally is how you work and who you are while you are working. So today you rest, I hope, it's Sunday, and hopefully tomorrow too, I hope you have the day off, and then it's back to work. And whoever your earthly boss is, whoever your earthly teacher or professor may be, if you do your work in love and humility and faith, you'll be working for your Father in heaven. This is the core of our fifth rhythm of life, faithful living. It's everything we do that's not at church in bringing the example of Jesus into all that we do and speaking boldly and gladly about God to the people in our lives, giving an account for why we work the way we do. And wherever your work is, you can do it this way. It might require a bit of creativity, but I promise it's possible. Does your work, whatever that is, involve other people? A boss or a direct report? Coworkers, customers, classmates, a screaming child that you're home alone with? Try as best as you can to see each one through Jesus' eyes. People that Jesus was willing to die for. People wanting to love and be loved. Yes, even that person, the one you're thinking about right now. The one you're like, Jesus died for everybody except her. Yeah, how can you treat them with the dignity that they are due? 
Is your work a bit of a slog? Is it repetitive? Is it solitary? I have had so many jobs like that in my life. A whole period of my life was just hours and weeks of data entry. Perhaps work can then become an occasion for prayer, attending to God while you do what you need to do. Are you out of work? Are you wanting work? I know how crushing that can be. I've been there too for a whole season. Perhaps the spiritual work for you in this season is to grow in your day-to-day reliance on God and gratitude, gratitude as hard as it is, I know, for the ways that God is providing what you need for the day at hand, which in the end is the only day any of us are ever promised. Whether you love your work, and if you do, that's great. Whether you love your work or merely tolerate it or hate it, there's no circumstance in this life that cannot be turned into a way and a chance to grow in your closeness to Jesus and to show him to others. You can't live in this state of mind, of course. It's impossible to maintain that kind of constant focus. But as best as you can, find ways to return to the awareness as you go about your work, simply recalling the name of Jesus, to return to the God who never leaves your side, even when we lose track of that God. And as you turn again and again to Jesus, be part of making everything beautiful in its time. This is God's work, and it will endure forever.